gold, don't we? It's, um, it's one of the most valuable things that people consider on this planet, <coughs> along with diamonds. Um, and it's been used for centuries in all sorts of things, mostly about money and wealth. But there's also now a lot of uses in industry, uh, manufacturing, space flight, um, electronics that, that absolutely need the precision that gold offers. And one of the traits that makes it <coughs> so useful is it's able to be shaped and formed really easily. Um, an ounce of gold, which is about the size of a 20 cent coin, can be flattened to cover a space of nine square, uh, nine square meters, which is quite a big space. Um, when, when gold is dug out from the ground, it looks like this. It's not all that pretty. It contains all sorts of other elements all around it, and these must be removed before the gold is useful, before it can actually be used for anything. And that's called a refining process. And this refining process involves heat. And it's intense heat. We're talking about over 1,000 degrees Celsius. The gold melts at that temperature. Um, and then eventually, through other processes, it's ready to be used. And I talk about that because it's, it's, it's what our Christian life is like as well. It's very much the same sort of process. We come out as newly formed Christians, you know, kind of looking We've got a couple of really nice bits there, but there's a lot of bits we need to work on. And, um, and there's a process of refining that we go through in our walk. We might, um, we might find it surprising um, you know, that people say, why do bad things happen to good people and whatnot? And the reality is, Scripture says, there is a trial, there is a refining process for us. We will be going through trials. We just read that. Um, and it's, it's actually God's refining process in us. And um, today I'm going to be talking about how we think about that and what sort of perspective we need to have on that. And this, is, um, this, this passage is coming from James. And it's someone who in verse 1 introduces themselves as James. And James is someone who understood trials. Now in the first century, James was a common name, as common as it is today. So who is this James that is introducing themselves? Most people believe it's the brother of Jesus. Um, and there's several reasons for that. Firstly, the letter is simply just introduced as James. Um, and if it was someone obscure, they would, they would need to clarify who they are. They'd put a little bit more detail about who they are. But James, the brother of Jesus, was someone that was able to stand alone. His name was able to stand alone, as, as was in that church, in the early church. And also the authoritative tone of the letter tells us it was someone that could speak with authority. And James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James's journey is really quite interesting. Um, being the brother of Jesus, you would think he'd be the first convert, but he grew up uh, not believing that Jesus was the Messiah at all. Uh, if we have a look at John, 5 verse 7, uh, John 7 verse 5, but not even his, um, his own brothers did not believe him. Um, and had another brother, Jude, who also wrote Jude. Um, however, after Jesus rose from the dead, um, James changed his heart, and he came to believe. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul referred to him as one of the three pillars. Uh, James Cephas, who was Peter, and John. Paul called them the, the pillars of the church. And so it's quite a, quite a transformation there with James. And James's life wasn't without challenges. It wasn't without struggles. And in the end, he was martyred 
for his faith in Jesus. But even at his point of death, he was kind, humble, and loving. And he prayed for those around him that God would forgive the people that were putting him to death at that moment. James wrote this letter around about 45-50 AD, um, which is quite an early letter. It's, it's likely to be the earliest um, that we have in the New Testament. Um, there's a reason we think it's early. It's in the first verse we see it's to the 12 tribes scattered. Um, yeah, in, in the first verse it says it's to the 12 tribes scattered. These are Jewish um, believers. We know that they're Jewish believers because um, in James 2.1 he says, these are believers in Lord Jesus. That's how he addresses them. Um, these Jewish believers were early Christians. And the reason we know it's an early letter is throughout this letter, James refers to words such as synagogue in, for a meeting place. Um, synagogue means synagogue, which is a Jewish term. Um, later on, the New Testament writings changed to use the word ecclesia, which is church. Um, and so that's how we know it's kind of early. Uh, but there's also some other things in there. Uh, it doesn't refer to some of the controversies that were happening, particularly around um, circumcision and whatnot. Uh, it's in the 45 to 50 AD. These were early Jewish Christians that were scattered, and they were scattered because of uh, the stoning of Stephen. In Acts 8.1, on that great day, a, a persecution broke out amongst the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. These scattered believers were experiencing a lot of persecution. They were experiencing pressure for their beliefs. And as an extra challenge, they weren't getting any pastoral support. They were cut off from regular contact with the apostles. So James is penning this letter to people who are feeling the pressure. And generally, he's penning it to an, a general group of people. He's not writing it to a specific town or to a specific church. He's being a pastor in absentia, which means a pastor in absence, and he's writing it as a sermon to encourage and instruct them. So we'll have a look at this passage to see what James has to say when he's speaking into the situation of persecution and trials. And keep in mind that James is a man that was familiar with trials. He understood trials, and these aren't empty words that he was writing. He was speaking from experience. So before we jump straight into um, the, the main body of the passage, I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'll be with us um, here, that you'll open our eyes, um, open our hearts, open our ears, so that your spirit can be present, so that it can speak to us, so that we're able to understand what it is that you would like to say to us today. In your name I pray, amen. So James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The words trials here is a test. It's either something external, like a persecution, or something internal, like a moral test or a temptation of something. And it's something that we actually all have in common. We all will face trials. James is stating the obvious, and it's something that we can all relate to. He says there will be many kinds of trials. He uses the word many. He doesn't say few. He doesn't say one. He also uses the word whenever. He doesn't say if. Trials are going to happen. 
and they will come simply because we are human. There will be sickness, there will be accidents, there will be disappointments. And some will even come because we are Christian. We can and we should expect trials. However, James asks us to shift our perspective about trials. He's saying, consider it pure joy. Now, how many of us can honestly say that when we're in a trial, we think, the first thing we think of, this is an occasion for joy? That's what James is asking us to consider. He's asking us to consider or think carefully about the way we are looking at this trial. The pure joy that he's referring to is a word that means unalloyed, total, complete. It's not a word that means exclusive. So he's not saying that you should exclusively feel nothing but joy. It's, it's normal and expected that we will feel other emotions throughout a trial. We can be saddened. There will be emotions. But his point is that our trial should be a genuine occasion for rejoicing and to consider how we are looking at our trial. How can we consider them as, as something for rejoicing? He answers that in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of the faith produces perseverance. We can rejoice because we have knowledge that God uses our trial to perfect our faith. It makes us stronger as Christians. In struggling against difficulty and opposition, spiritual stamina is developed. The testing method is the process, and it's similar to the refinement of gold. Proverbs 27.1 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. So this is how those things are refined. But people are tested by their praise. The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith so that impurities might be refined away, so that our faith becomes pure. It's important to note this is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. Rather, it's intended to purify the faith that is there, that already exists. And this produces perseverance. It's a quality. It's a quality of endurance. It's an image of a muscle that gets stronger as it faces resistance. The image of an athlete that gets stronger as they train. We can have joy in our trials because testing works for us. It doesn't work against us. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For our light and momentary troubles, achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And these are momentary troubles. There's a greater outcome that is to be achieved. James is saying up front, we need to learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul. That only when we face difficulty, it's worth rejoicing about if we're able to change that perspective that it's actually refining us, that it's growing us, that there's some benefit there of what is happening right now. The goal that he highlights is in verse 4, the goal of all of this, the refining. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance isn't the goal. Perseverance is the means to the end. This is how we get to the goal. He's saying, let perseverance finish its work, to remain faithful and not to give up. We often want 
our difficulties to end quickly. But we need to be patient. We've got to persevere through them. For the goal is to attain maturity, completeness. James is presenting this as the ultimate goal and to let perseverance finish its work in getting to that point. Ultimately, he doesn't want us to be lacking in what we strive for anything. He wants us to be getting to a place of a wholeness of Christian character that lacks nothing. And such maturity and completeness will only come when there's been patience for the work to be completed. I'd love to do a half marathon myself, and though I'm reasonably fit, I'd be kidding myself if I just turned up on race day and tried to run 21 kilometers. I would need to patiently train, kilometer by kilometer. I would need to let the perseverance of training get me through that to build stamina, to build endurance, to build strength in my body. And trials are much like the same sort of thing. They're our spiritual form of marathon training in which our faith is put to the test. And sometimes we may never understand the purpose of the trial. We might not understand that. But we will come to realize that trials in our life will draw us and do draw us closer to God. Because it's at these times that we understand we can't do all of this in our own strength. And I just ask you to ask yourself honestly, don't you pray more when you go through a trial? You're drawing closer to God. That's no accident. We continue on in verse 5. God extends an offer to help us through our trials. <clears throat> he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Verse 5 is talking about the period of testing before perseverance has finished its work. During this period, wisdom is the energy drink that will spur us through it. When we're in the thick of difficulties, we often lack wisdom, but we can have it by asking. And we should be careful to distinguish wisdom from knowledge. Wisdom, knowledge is about information and facts. Wisdom is about the discernment and how we apply that information and how we use that in an, in an efficient way. The wisdom that James is talking about here is not just knowledge, but rather making wise decisions in difficult circumstances. It's about using the knowledge that God gives us in discerning ways. When Christians need wisdom, the first place we turn to is in prayer. It says right there, God is willing to give it to us. But we won't be able to receive it if our goals are self-centered rather than God-centered. Although wisdom originates from God, it can come to us in many ways. So one is prayer. And I've got a slide here that just talks about all the different ways that God makes available to us to get wisdom. It's a, and I've put the passages up, um, which you can have a look at it later, but it's a gift from God through prayer. You can get wisdom through the Holy Spirit. You can get wisdom through the fear of the Lord, listening to wise counsel to others, through discipline, advising one another, and there's also research. There are all these mechanisms available for us in getting wisdom, and we need wisdom to get through our trials. 
If I just briefly look at that Proverbs passage that we read earlier, it really drums the beat of wisdom. If you accept my words, store up my commands, turn your ear to it, apply your heart to it, call out for it, look for it. These are all action words. The passage is saying we need to be active in looking for that wisdom. And it says God will give wisdom, and only once we've sought it and once he's given it, then we'll understand what is right, what is just, what is fair, what every good path looks like. Discretion will protect us. Understanding will guard us. I've just picked out a couple of those verses out of that Proverbs 2 passage that we read. But this one really goes into um, what it is about wisdom. But there's something on us. We need to have an active role in seeking wisdom. It needs some action on us. We need to seek wisdom during our trials. James 1.5 says we should ask for wisdom and imparts that we have an unlimited supply of wisdom from God. Verses 6 to 8 make it clear that we need to ask with the right attitude, otherwise there will be a barrier. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. We must believe and not doubt. <coughs> Belief is confidence in God and who he is. Doubt describes a divided mind, wavering between two options or two opinions or two poles. What is the point in prayer if we don't believe what we are praying for or even who we are praying to? If we doubt, then we're unstable. We're not having a, stand, a foundation to stand on. And James says when we're double-minded, we might give the appearance of belief, but we don't really believe. And belief isn't dependent on the size of your faith. If we have a look briefly in, in Mark 9, when Jesus healed the possessed boy, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been here? There's a bit of a dialogue. Um, the father at the end says, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. Now this father, this is not an example of being double-minded. He desired to believe and he even asserted that he believed. He said, I do believe, but he felt an inadequacy in his faith. He felt his faith wasn't big enough. There's a difference between belief and faith. He felt his faith wasn't sufficient, but in spite of that, um, in spite of his perceived weakness of faith, he set his heart to believe, and, God, and Jesus healed his son. And so too will God give us wisdom when we ask for it, but we need to believe in asking. You might not feel like it, your faith might feel small, but you need to believe. And sometimes trials aren't actually the problem because we're all going to be going through them. And what actually matters is how we respond to the trial. We can take two approaches to them. We can complain or we can learn from them. In both cases, regardless of which path you take, you're going to go through the trial. But the outcome will be different from both. If we face our trial with complaint and contempt, we will end up resentful, bitter, 
or a whole bunch of other negative emotions. Our state after the trial will be worse than before we entered it. And in a sense, we'll be burned up by our trial. Trials are like a refining fire, and we, we could be burned up rather than refined. The state of how the perspective that we put towards our trial matters. And James continues in verse 9 by contrasting two different people in different social circumstances. We know that both of these will go through trials. There's believers in a humble circumstance and there's also a rich. There's a contrast here. A believer in humble circumstances, which is a meaning of being low, insignificant, poor. It's a reflection of their socioeconomic status and it's likely that's what James is meaning here because he's talking about in the next verse, the rich. This believer is financially poor in a humble circumstance. And if we remember that this was written to scattered Jewish believers, they were forced to leave Jerusalem. They had to establish new homes elsewhere, and several of them would be facing tough financial situations, along with the social dislocation that they'd, had, that they'd gone through. But James wants them to look beyond the worldly circumstance. Their high position that he talks about refers to the new position in Christ, lifted up and given a new identity that's filled with dignity and worth. To endure persecution for Christ's sake lifts believers up to a position of honour and something that offsets their, po their poverty. It's also worthwhile mentioning that James doesn't explicitly state whether the rich person in verse 10 is a believer or not. It can be read both ways and honestly it's split down the middle. One way to read it is they are, it's a non-Christian and we often see this throughout the Bible, um, that the poor are depicted as godly people but the rich as wicked. And James could be using scorn and irony here when he's talking about this rich person, that the only thing coming for them that they can take pride in is their condemnation and judgment as he describes in verse 10 and 11. However, we also know that wealth isn't wicked in of itself, but rather the identity that's placed in it. And Zacchaeus was a rich Jewish tax collector that found salvation. And it's possible that in the scattering of Jewish Christians, there were some that were relatively well off. And in James 4, 13, um, he talks about people heading off and doing business. Um, so there's a possibility also that this rich person is a believer. And in that context, verse 9, it would be that the believer of verse 9 is carried forward into verse 10. And James is encouraging, if this is a believer, that this person not boast or take pride in their wealth, but to know that their identity is through Christ. Taking pride in being a Christian can look like humiliation when you have a lot. But ultimately, wealth and status a transitory, and they'll pass away or cease to exist, like a wildflower. I believe both are Christians, that's my personal view. Um, to the poor believer, James is saying, take pride in your exalted status. To the rich believer, he's saying, take pride in your humble status of identifying with the person that the world is rejecting, Jesus. The point being that Christians should evaluate themselves by their spiritual and not their material standards or circumstances. Maintaining this perspective against the backdrop of the world that uses a different standard of measurement, such as wealth, 
is not easy. But it again ties into this concept of perspective is essential. We need to be taking a, a perspective, and this is something that we can do. It's an action on us. Preceding these few verses, James was talking about trials and how they refine us. And James is, it kind of interludes just briefly into these to, to talk about this contrast, but he's now about to get back into wholly talking about trials. Um, in verse 12, he, um, oh, sorry, yeah, he's about to get back into verse 12, but I think this bit here is to just show us that poverty and riches could also be a huge test in of itself, that there's this mention here of, that, of these contrasts, that these things can compromise our commitment to Jesus. In poverty, we can be tempted to curse God, and in wealth, we can be tempted to forget God. But even in poverty and riches, there is cause for rejoicing because God is the great equalizer. He exalts the poor and he humbles the wealthy. It all gets equalized. Which brings us to verse 12. He brings it all together with a promise that he makes. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We see stated again that perseverance under a trial is a good thing. In fact, blessed is he who perseveres under that trial. And it's using language very similar to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In verse 4, he said, in verse 4, he said, perseverance will produce a complete Christian character. And here he's saying perseverance will bring God's blessing. The blessing, of course, is something that we can enjoy in this life as we experience the goodness of God, the spiritual joy that he brings us. But James's focus is on a future culmination of that blessing. Christians who stand up under trial will receive the crown of life that God has promised. When we see those words crown, we probably think of a headpiece worn by royalty. But in this Day, in, in the time that this was written and to the people it was written, first century Greco-Roman culture, it was probably more thought of like a laurel wreath, something that was given to victors in athletic contests. And Paul describes the crown in this way in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. There's that imagery of this disciple, of this disciplined athlete in a race achieving victory and this imagery of persevering through it, being refined in the process. And this crown is an idea of a reward, something for winning that race, something for getting to that end. And James is saying in this context of a reward, it's the crown of life, the reward is life. James is encouraging perseverance. And it was likely that believers were being tempted away at that time to walk away because of the pressure that they were feeling. But he's saying there's reward in persevering and continuing to stand with Jesus. The reward is you will receive life. Every trial and difficulty will come with temptation and an enticement to sin. And whilst God may allow our trials, James insists that God is not the author of the temptation which he's about to explain in verses 13 to 15. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Temptation and enticement to sin come from our own sinful natures. It's not from God. James is encouraging us to resist temptation that comes with the trial. He's now shifted into that gear. Financial difficulty can push us, can tempt us to question God's providence in our life. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering we see and the experience we have, it can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Trials will always bring a temptation and the temptation itself can be a test. Persevering means we need to overcome temptation. Whilst testing can come from God, and we see it, so God tested Abraham when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac, James argues that temptation does not come from God because God himself cannot be successfully tempted by evil. His holiness resists the invitation to sin. And if you think about it, there isn't anything inside God that temptation could actually appeal to. There's nothing that, that could be that hook. James is saying it's not logical that God is the author of temptation, but rather the source of temptation lies within a person. And he personifies this in that second half of these verses. He personifies it, identifies it as something external. He describes sinful nature as, firstly, something standing there that's attracting the attention of someone. And then that thing that's personified is persuading them to approach whatever this forbidden thing is going on. It's luring them almost like bait. And eventually, there could be a yielding to the temptation. And this imagery is just a description of how sin develops. The first stage of sin is temptation in verse 14. And it can be looked at, I'm, I'm kind of a maths guy, some formulas. Um, it can be looked at as design opportunity is temptation. And this is what verse 14 is talking about. And remember that sin is not temptation itself because Jesus himself was tempted. But temptation can move towards sin. And it's done that when action is coupled to it. <coughs> and then the final stage of temptation in verse 15 is death. And ultimately death involves eternal punishment. So what can we do when we're tempted, when there's temptation during a trial? How do we persevere? Well, we can look at our desires, since that is where sin is going to begin. That's what he was saying in verse 14. And the word of God can be instrumental in looking at this. And we look at how Jesus responded to his temptation. In Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10, I've just highlighted um, Jesus' responses. Um, just underlined there. So every time Jesus was tempted, he responded with the word. He knew the word, and he used the word. The word of God can be powerful to neutralize. Another way that we can get through temptation is to limit our opportunities, as we can only be tempted when there's desire and opportunity. And this can be done by asking for God's help. 
Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can ask for God's help on these things. The spirit is there, the spirit is willing. And in a practical way, we can limit our opportunities by just purposely avoiding situations that we know are going to weaken us in our time of trial, or avoiding people that their behavior would encourage us to sin in that time of trial. And finally, we need to learn self-control during our trials. Rather than yielding in action, which will convert temptation into sin, self-control is a gift from the Spirit that we need to know about, that we need to exercise, that we need to put into action. We see in Galatians 5, but the fruits of the Spirit, and it goes through, and self-control. God has already given us the Spirit as his instrument to impart strength into us. But I know the reality. As a believer, uh, for myself, and I'm sure for you, there are times that we will fall into temptation and into sin. And genuine repentance of that sin results in forgiveness of God through the blood of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And we see some of that come through in these remaining verses of this passage. In verse 16 to 18, um, every, sorry, yeah, in verses 16 to 18, sorry, the verse 16, do not be deceived, he's referring to the, do not be deceived about where temptations come from. Don't be deceived that they're coming from God. That's what he's referring to there. Um, but he's about to tell us what does come from God. So temptation doesn't come from God. Don't be deceived, but he's about to tell us what does. Instead of sending temptation, God is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. His gifts are marked by kindness and helpfulness, not destructiveness. God's greater than the heavenly lights. He's, great. He's the creator of all we see. And whilst we see the creation can shift around with shadows, like the sun, the moon, will make shadows that shift, God is unchanging. He's not a double-minded person like the one that was described before. And God's not there, out there toying us with temptation. He's not out there wanting us to destroy ourselves in sin. Rather, he's the giver of good things. And the most prized thing that we could ever achieve or get is life and eternal life. And that's what he's saying in verse 18. God's done an active thing. He chooses. Chooses is a, is a choice, is an action. There's something that God has done. He's come to the party. He's come to the table here. He chooses to give us, he chooses to give us birth, which is life. He doesn't choose to give us death. And it's a spiritual birth that he's talking about here that we've been given. God's been active in giving that to us. God sent his son, Jesus, who was fully God, but also fully man, who lived without sin, but bore his sin upon us. And James grew up with that Jesus. James knew about this. The word of truth that's described there, that's the good news. And that's what unlocks life. It's the good news about who Jesus is. That we can all know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That belief in him gives us access to what God wants for us. To be the first fruits of creation which is ultimately where this is all going. 
God's ultimate aim is regeneration for all of us, which is achievable through the death of Jesus. But to get there, we're going to be going through some trials. And we've been given everything we need to be successful in overcoming trials and temptations. We've been given the Word of God. We've been given the Bible to help us. The Holy Spirit. And you're in community amongst friends who can encourage. You might be in a trial right now, or there might be a trial around the corner. But the next time you face one, take note of what your initial reaction is. Because that will reveal where your faith is at. Do you grumble about it? Does it call, or does it cause you to cry out to God? Trials and temptations in themselves are, are kind of neutral, but they're a revealer of what the true condition is. And sometimes you won't always respond the same way. Sometimes we're victorious in our response, and sometimes we fail, and that's when we need to repent and draw closer to Jesus. And we can look to James to see what his responses have been and he faced one of the biggest trials of his life. The religious leaders, when he was leading the church in Jerusalem, the religious leaders threatened him because of the growth of that church. And they wanted to discourage people from believing in Jesus. So they took him to the top of the temple before a large crowd. And at this crucial moment, what did James do? Would he deny what he knew to be true, to save himself? Or would he stand up for what he believes in? And James replied in front of the whole crowd, why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. And the leaders, realizing that James wasn't going to give and they miscalculated, they thought he would just give up. They threw him down from the temple in great anger. They threw him from the pinnacle of that temple. And he fell 20 stories. But that didn't kill him. James bleeding and dying, he knelt in prayer. And he prayed for the forgiveness of those that were around him, that were killing him. There at that temple, he was martyred. But James prayed, Father, forgive them, for, what, for they don't know what they're doing. And that should sound familiar to you because that's the same prayer that Jesus prayed while he hung on the cross. James went through his trials. He persevered. And we can see right at the end there, he allowed that perseverance to finish the work because he achieved this spiritual maturity in the way that he was able to respond right at that moment. His trials made him more like Jesus. And friends, that's why we go through trials. And that should also be our goal, to be more like Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come before you today. We come before you with some of us um, struggling in trials. We come before you, some of us, just having exited a trial. And Lord, we know that we feel emotions, and we know that, that these things can't, are not always pleasant. But Lord, we just pray that, that you'll help us persevere through this, that you'll help us to keep our eyes looking towards you 
and that you'll allow us to grow stronger in you, that we'll be able to draw closer to you. We pray that we'll talk to people as necessary and get wisdom and guidance as, as is required throughout it so that we can make good decisions in the middle of this trial. We pray you help us with temptation through trials. We pray you'll help us keep strong with you. In your name I pray. Amen.